And welcome to Linux Action News, episode 179, recorded on March 7th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. We start this week with a story that might have been passed over by some, but could end up having a big impact on future Linux desktop apps. During the Flutter Engage Live event on March 3rd, Google announced Flutter 2 with tons of new updates. It includes Flutter's web support being upgraded from beta to stable, and among many other things, expanded Linux support. For those not in the know, Flutter is an open-source UI SDK created by Google to help those who want to build quick and modern applications for a wide range of operating systems, including Android, Linux, Mac, iOS, Windows, Google's own Fuchsia, and the web. And if the title of the show didn't clue you, what we are interested in is how this impacts Linux. And it seems it seems there could be some long-term impacts. This week, Canonical's engineering manager for the Ubuntu desktop at Canonical joined Google during that Flutter event. Hello, I'm Ken Van Dyne, engineering manager for Ubuntu desktop at Canonical. And Ken wanted to give a bit of context for the level of commitment that Canonical was making to Flutter. So Ken gives us an insight into the work that Canonical has done so far to bring Flutter to the Linux desktop. When desktop application support in Flutter was announced, we saw an exciting opportunity to make Linux distributions, including Ubuntu, an attractive target platform for Flutter app developers. Flutter's native multi-platform story is growing rapidly, and we wanted to be at the vanguard. We worked with the Flutter team to bring desktop Linux support to Flutter. It's still early days, but Canonical is working on improving Flutter's Linux support. To do so, we will work to bring full multi-window support to Flutter for desktop across all the desktop platforms that Flutter supports. We are working with the Flutter team at Google on the specification now, and we will start the engineering work very soon. Of course, plugins are an essential part of the Flutter app ecosystem as well. We are working on enabling popular Flutter plugins for Linux, including Flutter support for Firebase, Bluetooth, network connectivity, desktop notifications, and more. And it's pretty clear Canonical is not messing around here. They see the future of desktop Linux applications as being Flutter-based. And Ken says that's why they chose to build their new Ubuntu installer in Flutter. It's a statement of their commitment. Now that we have enabled Flutter for Linux, for other app developers, it's time to further our commitment by building our own Linux apps with Flutter. As we've already announced, we are developing our next generation Ubuntu desktop installer in Flutter. Soon, every user who installs Ubuntu desktop will be doing so with our new installer built in Flutter using the Yaru style. Choosing the installer as our first app written in Flutter is a bold move, to say the least. It's the first thing our users see and as everyone knows, that first impression is critical. And they're not stopping with the installer. Canonical is planning to use Flutter for all future desktop apps they make. The desktop team had not only worked to make Linux a first-class citizen in Flutter, Flutter is the default choice for future desktop and mobile apps created by Canonical. I think the community is having a bit of a challenge at processing this information. I think some don't know if they should just dismiss it. Others worry that it's not invented here syndrome all over again. Why don't they just use a good old classic native Linux application that's GTK, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it turns out that is actually one of the advantages of Flutter and might be one of the things that is attracting Canonical. It's actually the opposite 
have not invented here because it's Google that invented it. And it's Canonical hitching themselves to Google's wagon. And then when Flutter builds, when when a Flutter app builds, it builds to a native Linux application. So unlike Electron, which is running inside a Chromium runtime, your application like Slack, Flutter apps are actually native Linux desktop applications. And quite quick, we played around with building one before the show. Yeah, I think that's maybe one of the good ways to frame this is Electron apps fill a lot of the space from, you know, commercially designed applications, proprietary stuff, but even a lot of open source applications, especially if they're cross-platform. Electron is a, a nice value to be able to just port it there instantly. But Electron is kind of a kludge, right? They, we just bottled up a web browser, people knew JavaScript anyway, whereas Flutter and the Dart language underneath, it's all been designed for this purpose, and therefore it, it can be a lot faster and leaner. Yeah, and as you touched on earlier, it's still kind of early days. Uh, Dart itself is not necessarily ideal on Linux. Um, There is still a lot of work to be done to make these applications feel like full-fledged desktop Linux application, multi-window support being one of them, theme support, and just overall performance improvements. But those are all areas that Canonical has committed to Google that they're going to work on directly. And their statement of basing their installer on this is their way of saying – this is something that's going to stick around for many years. We're going to ship this in LTSs, which means we have decades ahead of us of working with Flutter. So if you're a Linux desktop application developer and you want to target our desktop, you can ship in Flutter. It will be Yaru themed. It will be a GTK application. But yet you get all the development kind of perks, a lot of the development perks of Electron development. You can... You when you when you're building a Flutter application, it's kind of like a real time thing. You can make an update and immediately see how the application responds. It's running in a VM while you develop it. Yeah, you get a lot of the modern workflow that people come to expect for developing from the web or developing mobile applications, but you get it for basically the whole range of things Flutter supports. That's nice. And we're not necessarily trying to advocate one thing over another, but you know, when something comes along that offers a lot of the benefits of building an Electron app, but with the benefits of native on Linux and also Windows, Mac OS, Android, and iOS. Well, yeah, I think part of this too is, you know, if you, we like to complain about not having native apps for Linux or not enough of them, but it's it's just a different platform, right? People have to use that. We almost have to have a sales pitch to developers of like, how do you, how do you do this? Flutter is going to be something people use for all kinds of other stuff. They might be making web apps. They might be using it to make a, a mobile app at work. And they can just transfer those skills to make Linux apps that maybe we won't hate. I'm not sure. It's yeah. very much early days. It's still in, in beta, really. So this could all not work out. But it's interesting to watch. So why do you think Canonical is doing this? I mean, it seems pretty obvious why Google would do it. There's a lot of competitive reasons for Google to do this. But why is Canonical getting so into this like they're developing resources to improve google's product essentially what what do you suppose the advantage for them is i think part of it must be just there's a lot of resources they can leverage you know if, if they can add some of their expertise and it does make me a little more confident you know having a bunch of canonical involved here do managing some of these linux implementation rather than say google doing it themselves directly i mean they they know what they're doing in this space they have experience i, I think what they might be getting out of it. It's just that it's they can have developers, they can hire people that don't necessarily have to be specifically skilled targeting the Linux platform, help them bridge that gap, but get access to all the experience they have. Just the brief playing around we did before the show to get some experience with it was clear 
There's a lot of tooling advantages. Flutter's very modern. They've taken a lot of ideas from different places. You get fancy type hints. It works with, you know, like IntelliJ, your IDEs people are already using in the field. Yeah. And so it could be, yeah, it's just a, it's a tool that makes sense for them from an organizational standpoint. I think there's the other element of this is Canonical has really become a multi-vendor player here. They've got a pretty tight relationship with Microsoft and Azure. We talked about that sales channel that they have. Right. Plus they have WSL, that relationship there. Then we've also seen that Canonical has a good relationship with AWS for deploying Canonical-supported Ubuntu images on AWS. And now here we see Canonical buddying up with Google to work with Flutter. Now, obviously, there's some in the community. They're going to go, God, that's, that's gross. But there's others in the community that go... That's the thing. You need somebody to make those interfaces with these giants. In some ways, they're sort of representing a a big chunk of the Linux-using world. And who else really could do it? You know, they're in a unique competitive position where they can interface with all of these different vendors who are competitors with each other and sort of play the neutral player part. Yes, they're a sort of independent entity. They've got expertise in sort of a specific layer of the stack, which isn't necessarily where those other people are directly competing just makes sense. Keeps things friendly with the big players as well. So that's got to be a part of why they're choosing Flutter. But then I think there's a third reason. Outside the tooling, outside the relationships, they Ken says something in in his little bit in the keynote, and he says that Canonical is going to base all of their future applications on Flutter. And that, I think, is maybe a more telling statement than it seems like at first. They must have some... This is strategy. They must have something they're building something they've identified that needs to be deployed on the desktop that's a canonical creation. Because when you think about it, they make their installer, they make their welcome screen. I mean, there's not a lot of graphical tools. There's a lot of software canonical rights. Snapstore, I guess. But there's not a lot of desktop applications canonical makes. And Ken said in that keynote that future canonical Ubuntu desktops will be based, desktop apps will be based on Flutter. So there's got to be something they have in the works, and they've identified this is the tooling chain that they want to use. And so I think it's these three strategic reasons coming together, the relationship, the the fact that this will be a native application that that looks good on Linux. It's very accessible to developers. That's all got to be playing a role here. But um, I don't see it necessarily equaling great success in the Linux ecosystem. I think it's tied to Dart. Um, its connections to Google will not make it like the default go-to solution for Linux developers. But for people who are trying to write high-performance multi-platform applications, I could definitely see it being a contender. And I'd say it's definitely one of those um, still in the interesting-to-watch stage technologies. You know, Flutter and Dart haven't yet taken over everything. Google's putting a lot of work behind it. It seems like there are folks that are interested and more and more apps are being made with it. I don't know that we're, we've crested that hill yet. So I think that is just going to be a huge part of it too. If Flutter really takes off, maybe this is more of a success. Otherwise, it might just be a, a niche tool set that <laughs> Canonical chooses to use. And if right. it works, that's fine. It could end up being that. Uh, I, I think Google would like to see it go otherwise. If you had a Magic West wand, um, what would you have them use instead of Flutter or Electron? Is there something else that comes to mind that would solve this problem? Not immediately, at least that offers the same stuff, you know? I mean, the the elementary folks have kind of come closer in their own ways with, with Vala and their own tool set, but it's still kind of a niche Linux technology. You're not going to get exposed to that 
if you don't or you're not specifically targeting desktop apps or even those distributions. And that's the main thing that offers. And that's what's happening with Electron, right? I mean, it's pretty rare that you see something that's cross-platform. Maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, GTK and, and Qt can do that, but then you're writing all those hooks yourselves to interface at the lower levels. You just don't worry about that as much with something like Flutter. Yep, yep, for sure. Uh, my kind of irrational, really no no facts back this up, worry about this is that Flutter is a hit because it, I mean, what do I know, right? I got it up and running with your help, but I mean, what do I know? I built You're, my, you're a Flutter developer now. I built an app <laughs> um, and I thought, oh yeah, okay, that was actually pretty painless. I could see this being successful. And then we build all these Flutter apps and then Fuchsia comes along and it says, oh, by the way, Flutter, <laughs> just one click to run your apps on Fuchsia OS, part right over from Linux in one click. I guess Ubuntu will become a Fuchsia distribution. Leno.com slash LAN. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit, and of course, you support the show. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible. They're our cloud hosting provider of choice, and a lot of you have tried them out by going to Linode.com slash LAN. And a very common bit of feedback I get, besides how exceptional their support is, is it seems like their network is just a bit faster than anybody else you've ever tried before. Well, this is one of the advantages of being around forever in cloud computing. They started in 2003 as one of the first businesses in this gig. And that meant that they had time to build things up and make great deals. And in 2016, they went all in on controlling their network future. They became their own ISP and built out a global network, which gave them tons of benefits, including having full control over where their network goes in the future, strategic buying opportunities from multiple providers, and obviously the best peering agreements they could get. And it set a foundation for them to tackle a global data center network. And now they have 11 data centers worldwide. But this kind of thinking radiates the entire Linode service. And it's exceptional. From $5 a month rigs to super powerful and fast systems that can do GPU compute. Check them out and get that $100 60-day credit and see what works for you. Try out Object Storage. Check out their cloud management dashboard their API, which is fantastic, their documentation, which is extensive, all of it. Linode.com slash LAN, and a big thank you to everybody who goes there and supports the show. Linode.com slash LAN. Google announced they're tweaking the release cycle of Chrome to make it a bit faster. They note on their blog, as we've improved our testing and release processes for Chrome and deployed bi-weekly security updates to improve our patch gap, became clear that we could shorten our release cycle and deliver new features more quickly. Not surprised to see this at all. It was towards the end of 2019 that Mozilla started shifting the Firefox release cycle to four weeks. And, well, Google, you know, they can't be undone. They have to have the big version numbers and the fast releases as well. But I don't know, Wes, maybe it's the uh, old sysadmin in me, but it seems like web browsers are getting developed at a breakneck pace. I, I really can't can hardly keep track of even the version numbers anymore. Well, they are some of the most important applications we use on a day-to-day basis, and both Mozilla and Google cite that users want features faster, more features, faster. (laughs) It does sound like me. And the browser has kind of just become more like a back-end service. It's not really a classic versioned application. It's being developed almost continually and deployed almost as often. If that makes you nervous... There is some good news in this post, which we will have a link to this in the show notes. They say that they're going to add a new extended stable option, which kind of reminds me of Firefox's ESR release. It'll have a milestone update every eight weeks. 
Extended Stable will be available to enterprise administrators and Chromium embedders, but they also note that security updates on the Extended Stable version will be released every two weeks. So you're still going to see some updates coming, but they're not feature changes. They're just security fixes. And then, of course, Chrome OS, a bit of a question mark in all of this as well. They said that they plan to support multiple stable release options and that they're going to have more information for Chrome OS users and administrators soon. But the core issue that Google's really dealing with, and, and honestly, Firefox as well, is the web is not standing still. It is constantly a moving target. Well, because the rest of the web is an online, you know, there's not versioned different webs. It's all the web that's live all the time. And so a browser has to have some of those elements in some ways, right? It can, it does have features that, you know, might change between versions, but fundamentally it's connected to the real world as it exists right now. Yeah, I guess I don't really have a problem per se with software updating super frequently. I mean, I, I love rolling distributions. I, I like new new software. But if something's going to get updated on a really regular basis, I strongly prefer it's managed by a distro package manager. I'll give you an example where I draw the line. So Reaper, which we use to record and produce this show, the audio editor, it has updates every so often. And so it's not a big deal to go get the tar file and download and extract it and essentially, quote unquote, install it. I don't mind that being a manual process from time to time. But if my web browser is going to update once a month and I have two browsers that are updating once a month and they're a pretty crucial piece of software, like you say, I just trust that to be done by the package manager. I have had experiences even recently that were like the worst of the Windows days where I took an old MacBook and I dusted it off. I cracked it open for the first time. It had legitimately been a little while. And if if I maybe in being generous here with 10 minutes, it may have even been 20 minutes that that thing just sat there burning CPU. I sent you screenshots. It's just burning CPU doing app updates. And every time I'd launch an app, I'd get an update prompt asking me if I want to quit and relaunch when I'm in the middle of just trying to get something done. And it's just this hodgepodge mess on the Mac. It's not so bad if you run a Mac 24-7, but if you just visit occasionally and you fire it up, it's it's a crap experience now because all of these updates that are frequently happening and each update is being managed by the developer directly. And it sounds good in principle, but the end result as a user is a real, real crappy 10, 20 minutes when you turn a box on for the first time in a few weeks. And that's where I just trust a, a, a distribution package manager to handle this stuff a lot smarter. It at least gives you control. Yeah, it's on my terms. It's not when I'm just trying to do something. And, and Chrome... Chrome does that on the Mac. On the Mac and on Windows, I think, too, it self-updates and it just sort of does it in the background without any warning or any prompting. And while I get the idea and it's important to get those updates down to end users, I don't like not having any control over when it just all of a sudden demands a lot of resources from my machine. Well, that's a good thing you're not running Windows then. And really, this problem in a larger context is something the Linux Mint distribution is also struggling with right now. And in upcoming releases, developers may insist that users install some of those darn patches. This is a big change. And in what has turned into a series of blog posts, we've learned that Linux Mint server-side statistics give us an indication that around 30% of users apply updates in about less than a week, 30%, and then it's kind of a drop-off after that. But even more concerning is that their stats indicate around 5 to 30, and Clem says it's not super clear. They don't have great data here. 
but around 5 to 30% of their users are still running Linux Mint 17, which was end of life in April of 2019. Yeah, that's a big range, and it's kind of hard to put these numbers into context without some data to compare it to other distributions, and I guess, ideally, some more and better data. But it's it's clear that the Mintevs think this is an issue. Yeah, I mean, they are, they're, they've written a post that just says, update your computer, exclamation mark. I mean, they're really trying to address this. Um, I think they've realized there's been an issue that sort of and it's kind of become the culture of Mint users, I think, to avoid updates. And the part of the challenge, it seems, for the developers to really solve this is they don't have a great set of data to work with. Clem says in the next release, the update manager won't just look for available updates, but it will also keep track of particular metrics and be able to detect cases where updates are overlooked. In some cases, the update manager will be able to remind you that you should probably apply these updates. And in certain cases, it sounds like it's going to kind of insist that you install the updates. You know, I'm not really clear what that means, but the component of this where it's going to provide better, more complete information, reminders that there are updates that are available and that you might need to install for security reasons, that seems like a good thing or at least a a good intention. Yeah, it'll be one to watch because I think Linux Mint made a little bit of hay out of trying to create an environment that didn't change more than it needs to. And one of the ways that that was accomplished was by assigning sort of a, a number level to updates. Uh, you're probably familiar with the Mint updater. I remember this. Yeah. yeah, you get these different numbers. And it kind of it kind of is an implicit statement that some updates are less important than others. When you have kind of a more complex situation when it comes to software on a Linux distribution where so many things are linked to other things, you kind of have to update everything and keep it all up to date. And I think by by calling some updates out and saying this is a level one update and this is a level four update, it sort of set an acceptance among its users that it's okay to skip certain updates. And I think that bears out in this data that's been released here is that there's a bit of a culture of skipping updates and some users even consider that potentially a feature of Mint. And so to now try to move that culture towards one that's more accepting of updates is going to be a tricky thing for the project to pull off, not only from a cultural standpoint, but from a technology standpoint, too. They got to build the tools that their users are going to find appealing to use. Yeah, it's kind of the start of a new conversation. He does point out Time shift is available. For the most part, these updates should just work. And if they don't, well, you need to figure that out also. They have to get fixed one way or another. Snapshots are your friend. You know, I can certainly appreciate why they'd want this to happen, though. When, when you're doing all the hard work to get those updates shipped, especially if they're important, they might, you know, fix some of the bugs your users are complaining about, or it might be an important security update. It kind of sucks to have people not using them. Like, for example, that recent Cinnamon update. That's a great example. So users are having this problem where the memory usage on their system just keeps going up and up and up. Clem writes that they expect the desktop, a clean Mint desktop, to take somewhere between 80 megabytes of RAM and maybe a gigabyte. But users are seeing two, four, six gigs of RAM. And some of these systems are not very high-end boxes. And Clem writes they don't know what's causing these Cinnamon desktop memory leaks yet, but they have a workaround that essentially watches to see free memory and will just restart Cinnamon for you. It's kind of a clunker, but I guess it's better than your whole system locking up from a low memory condition. But if people are not installing these updates, they can't get the workaround. 
linux.ting.com. I understand you've got a lot of subscriptions. There's a lot of things to pay for these days. A crazy expensive mobile bill shouldn't be one of them. And if you know how to sync your podcast or your music or just take advantage of being on Wi-Fi before you hit the road, you can save a ton of money with Ting. It's never been a better time to join Ting. Now, they have plans for anybody at any data size or usage, but Ting has some really clever plans right now. If you can be strategic about how you use your data, you can save just a substantial amount of money. And what I love about Ting is they have three nationwide networks to choose from. I mostly bounce between AT&T and Verizon, but I love that flexibility. And they even have 5G coverage where it's available. But the great thing about Ting is no contract. And if you use two gigs, 20 gigs or more, there's a perfect plan for you now over at Ting. And every single plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service. With nationwide LTE and 5G coverage, you're going to have coverage wherever anyone has coverage. That's a really nice peace of mind thing about Ting. And with the plan to fit every user and three great networks to choose from, it's really simple to switch to Ting because just about every darn phone is supported now. You can figure out if your phone works and you can just bring it right over by going to linux.ting.com. Take a look. If it does, they're going to give you $25 in service credits. That might just pay for your first month. That's how good of a deal Ting is. Now, if you need a new phone, they'll sell one to you and you can take our linux.ting.com $25 and apply it to that as well. But I'm going to I'm going to make a bet that if you have a kind of a modern phone and you're on one of the major carriers now, Ting's going to work. They'll just send you a SIM card and you'll be up and going in minutes once you receive it in the mail. It's awesome. And cutting your phone bill in half has literally never been easier. I've been a Ting customer forever and I can tell you these brand new plans are spicy. Go check them out right now. The next generation of Ting Mobile is here. See how much you could save and get $25 off at linux.ting.com. In one of my favorite moments this week. Linus Torvalds wrote on the Linux kernel mailing list, Hey peeps. Hey Linus. He went on, and it only gets worse from here, unfortunately. Some of you may have already noticed that in my public git tree, the 512rc1 tag has magically been renamed to 512rc1 don't use. Don't use? It turns out there was a severe data corruption bug that hits systems that use a swap file rather than a dedicated swap partition. Linus went on to say, As far as I know, all the normal distributions set things up with swap partitions, not files. Because honestly, swap files tend to be slower and have various other complexity issues. That might be true, but if that smells a little funny to you, I agree. I mean, just top of mind, Ubuntu has been using swap files by default for a, a long time. But this reminds us really of the role that distributions play. This is a bug that we never really have to worry about. It's managed by the distribution, and these kind of kernel updates are specifically watched by the people putting the distributions together. So really, we kind of get the best of both worlds. We get to sit back and watch this really kind of remarkable piece of software be created and and watch the team respond with really no immediate consequences to us as users. Yeah, and Linus was very clear to point out this was caught in the RC stage during, you know, mostly normal testing. But to me, his tone seemed a little bit sheepish. I mean, I think this is a little embarrassing for the kernel. 
and perhaps rightfully so. I mean, they take data integrity seriously, and having Swap just spraying all over your file system, that's kind of embarrassing. As he put it, I want everybody to be aware of this because if it bites you, it bites you hard. And you can end up with a file system that is essentially overwritten by random swap data. This is what we in the industry call double ungood. Indeed. Well, a quick PSA before we go. The container plumbing days is just around the corner as we are recording this. So save the date, March 9th through the 10th. It's a two-day event that investigates, discusses, hacks and learns, and celebrates the lower level of open source container technologies. If this is something you've wanted to learn, well, this could be your chance to do it. Here's a taste of some of the topics being explored. Container runtimes, security, and isolation. Virtualization inside containers. And of course, Linux cgroups, namespaces, and other kernel features that power containers. Container Plumbing Days is sponsored by Red Hat. It's never really too late to learn or get a refresher, right? And while you're doing that, don't worry. We'll keep you updated on the latest Linux news that you should know about. Just go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. If you're considering a LastPass alternative right now, check out selfhosted.show slash 39. We run down our favorites and the ones that we self-host. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. 